0: Again, with some thank yous to uh, the other elders and um, allowing me the time away. Um, Thank you to Pastor Tim, an excellent message kind of wrapping us up for the summer in Colossians and then the series in Jonah was uh, used by God greatly, continuing to be used by God greatly in my own heart. Thank you, Keith. Um, Missed you guys, all of you, but... We did our best to try to worship alongside. Sometimes it was a, a day following because of service. Other times we, we didn't like that very much. That didn't work out. To try to pick it up later, that didn't work. So we, we took some time aside two of, the, two of the weeks, worshiped alongside some family another week. But uh, it wasn't the same to not be able to be alongside of you, but we enjoy getting to hear at least the, the team singing. and It's just good to be back with you today. I freely admit... Um, Whatever progress I try to make when it comes to prayer, I have difficulty understanding the boundaries or the limitations that are appropriate to prayer. Uh, The psalmists and inspired prayers complain to the Lord. I thought the words said don't complain, but they complain. Jonah, the prophet, accuses God prayerfully. I'm not saying he was right, but God doesn't say, how dare you talk to me like that? Right, he addresses it. So Jonah accuses God. Moses, who unlike anyone else, probably other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the very image, who is himself God. Moses, unlike anyone else, spoke with the Lord face to face. Three times it says that. Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. God says, this is, it's not like this with anybody else. Right, speaks to the Lord face to face. Moses contradicts God even as he intercedes for God's people. Uh, Keith mentioned this in the last few weeks. So uh, complaining and accusing and contradicting. Uh, Another astonishing example is Abraham who negotiates with God in prayer. And God, the sovereign creator of all things, right, dependent on no one, answering to no one, responds to this negotiation and actually commits himself to what is negotiated by Abraham. I hope that that's like, stark to us. And that account is in Genesis 18. Uh, it's going to launch us into our topic today. You, you could go there. We're not going to be there long. Um, God appears to Abraham in Genesis 18, starts, and the Lord appeared to him, to Abraham, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And as he appears to Abraham, he revealed a promised blessing, which was Isaac. <laughs> uh, I looked that way. That was funny you are a blessing. Just, you weren't this blessing. God revealed a promised blessing, which was Abraham's coming son, Isaac, and he revealed a coming cursing, which was the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 23, Abraham began or begins to intercede with God for the fate of Sodom, asking if the righteous would be swept away with the wicked in judgment that was coming. And in this interchange, Abraham says, I think, let's see, a Verse 24, suppose there are 50 righteous people within the city. Will you then sweep away the righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare with the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, who do you think you are? How dare you talk to me that way? No, no, it's Gird up your loins like a man, right? How God talked to Job. No, the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And that's enough, right? I mean, okay, Abraham, you better shut your mouth. But he doesn't. The conversation continued. Abraham negotiates with God down to only 10 righteous people. You remember? 50? Alright, 50. 40? F- uh, 45? What, what do you think about 45? Uh, okay, how about 40? 30? 20? 10? He just keeps going. It's why does he keep going? Why does God allow him to keep going? I, I, just, I miss aspects of that. But, but really, the focus that I want to have is not, on, not actually on prayer or what we can do in prayer. My mind is still blown about that. But just this, this one phrase that Abraham asks God, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's the question I want to consider together today. As it reveals an important truth about God, that God is, here it is, God is righteous And just. Uh, My understanding, obviously, we weren't here for training hour, but I believe that Ken in uh, the series that he's been going through uh, covered aspects of this this week. This sermon is not because Ken did a bad job. Uh, To be honest, it's because it's one of the very few sermons I haven't preached here, and it's been hard shifting back in to the office, being gone five weeks. So this is a freshened up, older sermon that just happened to cover a topic that Ken had already covered, but I talked to him about that. God is righteous and just. There it is. But in order to unfold God's righteousness and justice, I want to draw your attention to two statements drawn from two different verses, uh, one in Exodus 23 and the other in Romans chapter 4. Two statements from two passages to help us see the facets of the truth that God is righteous and just. First statement, found in Exodus chapter 23, verse 7 says this, I will not acquit the wicked i will not acquit the wicked this is helping us to establish an aspect of god's righteousness and justice when we talk about these type of things there's some groundwork that we need to do starting off with the fact that when we're talking about god being righteous we need to understand that god is actually the standard of righteousness so it's not righteousness that god meets God acts in righteousness. All that he does is righteousness. He is the definition of righteousness. That's what I mean by standard. Like we have a standard. What is, a, what is an inch? It's like, well, or, or what, is a, what is a foot? It's like, well, there, there's a foot. I have a foot. I have two of them actually. You, I think all of you have two feet as well. Uh, like how long is a foot? Well, so if we were going by this foot, it's all going to be different. Some of it's going to be longer than mine. Some, many of them are going to be shorter than mine. But if we're talking about measurement, it's not just like each of us arbitrarily looking at that, right? It's 12 12 inches, and we can define the distance of that. That's what a foot is. That's a standard, and so we measure according to that standard. God does not, there's not a standard of righteousness that's somewhere else that God's like, hey, look, I do these things. I act according to this standard that is external to myself. That's not what we mean by God being righteous, His character, his nature, define moral rightness because we can't talk about righteousness without rightness, right versus wrong. This is a moral category. This is an ethical category. There is a right, there is a wrong, and God doesn't just do what is right. What God does is what is right. Did you see the difference? Give me some nods or I can belabor this and we'll go for a really long time. I haven't preached for a while. And God's law reflects... His righteousness, he did not give a command that was contrary to his own character, his own rightness, his own righteousness. He is law giver, so he can't act contrary to himself, so all his actions are righteous. And he can't command contrary to himself, so all of his commands are righteous. So as we think about righteousness, we need to recognize God as a standard, his law as a reflection of those type of things. He is the righteous one who is a righteous law giver. But boy, don't we wish that we were the standard. Don't we think that we are the standard? Don't we respond to others, including God, as if we were the standard and we get angry when our standard is violated like Jonah? God, this is is evil. This is bad that you did this, right? Keith highlighted this for us last week. That's when we get angry, it's because our law has been broken and we're responding to that. But as much as we would like to imagine and act like we are the standard, of course, you hear me, right? We, there's, a, there's a, uh, we could just, I could preach this in front of a mirror, none of you could be here and I could just say, I, okay, so not you, no, me, Us. As much as we, I, you, like to imagine and act like we're the standard, we're not the standard. God is the standard, and we see his standards revealed in his commands throughout Scripture. So God is law, righteous. God is lawgiver. God's righteousness is that rightness, that perfection, right? And his justice, in a sense, they're synonyms, in a sense, they're not. I think that there's, there are different ways in which these categories reflect things. God's justice is his rule and his judgment according to his righteousness. You could say here that he is is judge in righteousness, right? So there's the standard, and then there's the application of that standard in judgment. That's his justice. Here in the United States, according to the Constitution, the only place that you can find that this is actually true anymore our system of government has three branches and a balance of power between the three you have the legislative branch that congress that makes the laws the judicial branch the supreme court evaluates laws and evaluates cases based on those laws and then you have the executive branch the presidency and things that flow from that that carry out those laws no one person is supposed to have all of that power in and of themselves. There's a balance of power, division of power, and then there's checks and balances and all those type of things. And uh, that's great—a good system of government for the United States. It'd be wonderful if we actually followed it, uh, but it has nothing to do with God. Nothing to do with God. Not like oh, it's ungodly. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when we talk about the justice and government of God's universe, that those things don't apply. Okay, so it's not like the Trinity is like executive, legislative, and judicial. That would be massive. It would probably be a new heresy, but it would be an old heresy. Because all heresies, all the heresies, old heresy. No division of power. No balance to those powers when it comes to God's rule over His creation. He is not president or or justice among, one among nine, or, or Congress representing different people. He's, he's king. Absolute. His rule is absolute. He is legislative, judicial, executive, all rolled into one, perfectly united. And the standard flows from him, and he decides based on himself and his standard, and he, he executes judgment based on those standards. The standard, which is himself. That's what real Righteousness, that's what real justice looks like. It resides in God and flows from God. So God is the standard, righteousness. God holds everyone to that standard, justice. That will be the simplest way, I think I can say it. God is the standard of what is right, that's righteousness. And God holds everyone to that standard, that is his justice. Other passages, many that we could look at, but just two. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 11 says a just... Balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are His work. The just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are His work. Yeah, there's a precision that comes from weighing things out on a scale. I like precision. I like like weighing things out um, to make me better than other people. So, like when it comes to coffee, uh, you think you're particular. On coffee and some of you like coffee now some of you really like coffee Um, I'm very precise when it comes to coffee how precise are you Peter I'm so glad you asked Uh, I have a scale at home I have a scale in my office be glad to show it to you to where I can measure out uh, to the gram the amount of coffee that I use and the amount of water that is used Uh, to get the proper ratio which ideally is about a 13 to 1 since you asked water to coffee ground ratio. Uh, also want to make sure temperature is important. I come a little bit lower on temperature than I do just because of the hot water machine that I use. But uh, I also do that with baking. Right? Oh, how, is it a cup or two cups? No, it's, it's 1175 grams. Uh, not 1176, not 1174, 1175 uh, for my pizza dough recipe. I could show you the gram ratios and the relationship between the flour and the water and those things. So, but it's important sometimes. Not necessarily with coffee, but it is to me. So when you talk about a just scale, I don't want one... There's a difference between 10 grams and 15 or 20 grams. And there's a big difference when it comes to the marketplace what those scales mean. right? So it's not just fairly obsessive people that it matters to, but God's righteousness and justice are so thorough that he cares that if you sell one pound of corn, that you give one pound of corn. Not that if you sell, right, receive money for one pound of corn, that you give a half pound of corn. Not 0.9, not 1.1, but that it's equal. Because that those scales, right, it used to not always be digital, right? Remember the the scales of weighing. Still see some of those in grocery stores. I used to have one, we got rid of it, called it the scales of justice. but they had to have what that pound was. If you were gonna weigh out a pound of silver to pay or if you were gonna receive a pound of grain or a pound of corn, you needed to know that that pound really was a pound. So you'd have that in a bag. Those bags would be marked one pound, five pound, 10 pounds, whatever it was. And so it was dishonoring to the Lord. It was unjust. It was failing to meet his standard of righteousness contrary to who he is as God. For you to say, this is one pound of corn, when it wasn't one pound of corn, but a just balance, what actually measures out, just scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. How justice flows out, right? It will match. So if you do one hour of work, it is just that you get paid for one hour of work. And any deviation from this is unrighteousness or, un, or injustice, and that doesn't mean that everyone gets the same thing, but rather that everyone gets what they are owed. There's a big difference. That's a whole other, kind of a whole other thing I'm kind of tempted to touch into. Right? It doesn't mean that it's like if you pay for one pound of corn and somebody else pays for a half pound of corn, that everybody gets one pound of corn. Right? That's not justice. Okay? You getting what, what you have paid for what you have worked for, that is justice. Not everyone getting the same thing. You see, actually, everyone getting the same thing, if everyone hasn't done the same thing, that's actually injustice. That's contrary to who God is, and that's contrary to how he governs his universe, and we must govern as he governs, and we must act as he has acted. That doesn't remove a place for generosity, right? Because the generous vineyard owner in Matthew 20, again, I'm a little bit rabbit chair, I'm gonna try to keep myself back in here. The generous vineyard owner, told the people, if you work a whole day, I'll give you a whole day's pay. That makes sense. But then he told people, if you work half day, I'll, give you a, I'll pay you what you do. If you work one hour, I'll pay you whatever is right. So when the first people came and they worked a whole day, how much did they get paid? A whole day's pay, and that is justice, and that's good, and that's right. And then the people that worked half day, right, deserved a half day's pay, But the owner can do what he wants with his money, and he said, I want to pay you more. And I know it went backwards the other way. That's the point of the story. So I'm doing this wrong. The people who worked one hour got a whole day's pay, and then the people who worked a whole day and deserved a whole day's pay, let's say $50, $100, whatever. It doesn't doesn't matter. $100. They're like, oh, we're going to get more than $100. And then they got $100. And they're like, "Who, who do you think you are? That's not right. That's not fair. He's like, well, I paid you what you deserved. Are, are you envious of me because I'm generous? I can do what I want with my stuff, right? That's not a failure of righteousness. They got what they deserved. They wanted more. They did not get what they deserved. They got more than they deserved. That's generosity, it's not a miscarriage of justice. A just balance, just scales are the Lord's, all the weights in the bag are his work. That's Proverbs chapter 16. The other passage is what I already mentioned, Exodus chapter 23. And in the law, it says this. This would have been read a few weeks ago, I suppose, maybe a month or so. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Uh, Verse 6, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for, here it is, I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. And this is a really interesting part of God's law to me, right? And his law, reflection of his character, so I want to better understand who God is and what he knows who we are. Because this part of this law, and others as well, reveal God's perfect wisdom responding to our corrupt hearts. It recognizes that there is a tendency to side with the rich against the poor, to side with the many against the against the few when it comes to determining what is right, what is just. It also recognizes, see, some people are like, yep, that's the corruption of the human heart, and it is, but it's not all the corruption of the human heart is, because it also recognizes the tendency that we have as human beings, sinful human beings, to overreact to the injustices that we see, not to make up for it, but actually swinging from injustice on one side to injustice on the other side. And siding with the poor against the rich because they're poor. Not because they're right, but because they're poor. Don't side with the rich because they're rich. Don't side with the poor because they're poor. Don't side with the many because they are many. Don't side with the few because they are few. Siding with the guilty rich is wrong. Siding with the guilty poor is wrong. And we must apply the same principle across every category, male and female. Men aren't wrong because they're men. Women aren't wrong because they're women. Women aren't right because they're women. Men aren't right because they're men. Male and female, young and old. Oh, because you're young, you're right. No, because you're old, you're right. No, you're right or you're not right. Male and female, young and old, red, brown, yellow, black, and white. The majority can be wrong. The minority can be wrong. God sees and knows and judges according to what is right, not according to what is popular. And we must do the same, and I'm not just talking about other people. I'm talking about us, and I'm talking about our sinful tendencies toward unrighteousness. We just take all of our fingers that we point at other people, point it back at ourselves because we are, we are doing this. We're guilty, just all of us, all the time, right? We need to be aware of that. We need to come to grips with that because that's the point. See, it's not just unrighteousness that exists somewhere else. Actually, no one is righteous according to God's standard of his righteousness. Nobody. I'm not. Far from it. You're not. Far from it. This is a clear point in Scripture. The Psalms quoted by Paul, Romans 3, with the conclusion that he makes none is righteous. No, not one. No one. Who meets this standard that is God? Nobody. Wow, that's an exaggeration. Poetic license, hyperbole. Well, let's do a little exercise. Let's consider the Ten Commandments. God's law, reflection of God's righteousness. No other gods before me. I shall have no other gods before me. That applies to the idols of the Assyrians in Nineveh. (laughs) Terrible, idolatrous, wicked people. That applies to pagan, superstitious sailors carrying their idols with them. And that applies to stubborn, self-righteous prophets like Jonah. All who trust in vain idols, right? And how clearly has it been shown to us that everybody in that story is an idolater, And everybody reading that story is an idolater. No other gods before me. You're you're guilty. So am I. No graven images or misconceptions of God in our thinking and in our worship. Oh, God's like this. He's going to act like this because I want him to. Well, you just made a God after your own image and you're worshiping him instead of the God of scripture. You're, You're guilty. So am I. Not taking the name of the Lord in vain. That's more than simple verbal blasphemy. Oh my God, God damn this, right? It's like, (gasps) we've never heard anybody say that, come on. It's like, but like, yes, that's not right, but there's more than that. Like taking the name of the Lord upon yourself, are we honoring the name of the God whose name we bear as, as his image bearers and as his children, like as his creatures and that? Like everything that we're doing in line with the fact that we are God image bearers and Christians, Christians? no. We so often take that name on ourselves in an empty and frivolous and thoughtless way. Remember the Sabbath. God has ordained work and rest. We work when we should rest and rest when we should work. Honor your father and mother and all those who exercise authority over us from God. If I was just claiming my own innocence on honor and obedience, mom and dad are right there. Don't talk to them. I'm just not, not, not that, I don't pass that one. Just move on. Went out of order on that. Already talked about Sabbath. You shall not commit murder. The unborn. Exactly, right? Boy, do I hate those wretched Assyrians. Boy, do I hate those abortionists and those liberal Marxist anarchists. I hope they all get what we deserve. They deserve. I really hate them. But everyone who is angry is liable to judgment, and we are to love our enemies. We're guilty. You shall not commit adultery or lust, homosexual sin or heterosexual sin. You shall not steal or withhold that which is owed to someone else. You shall not bear false witness, not just lying, but also gossip and slander and withholding truth when we could speak on someone else's behalf. You shall not covet. I started reading Francis Schaefer, who says this is the he sees like covetousness, which is idolatry. So this is the climax. And every sin, he says, comes down to covetousness. You covet. You long for God to do something different for you. You long for, for that person. It's like, it's not loving God because like, no, 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 you should have done something different. I long. I'm, I'm jealous towards something different. Or I look at somebody else be like, no, I long for what that person has. So he says all sin comes down to covetousness. That was a new idea. It was an interesting one. So he could go through the list that Moses or that the Lord provides to Moses, right? Not his house, not his wife, not his servant, not his donkey. Love donkeys throughout the Old Testament. It's very important to them. I've joked about that before, but not his car, not his camper, not his marriage, not his ministry, not his um, children's obedience, not his... Health. uh, Everybody, we can. Do we we need to go on? Right, we're guilty of all these things. You measure up to the Ten Commandments as a reflection of God's righteousness in our world. No, you don't. You're unrighteous. So am I. We could summarize it again: the two greatest commandments. Right, love God completely. Anybody? Love your neighbor as yourself. Anybody? Life is that simple. Two rules. Love God completely. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That simple and that impossible. We are all terribly unrighteous. Therefore, everyone is guilty, condemned according to God's justice, deserving the destiny of their eternal damnation. this should be the end of the sermon. But it isn't. If we think that it is, If we think that's the message that we have, if we only share that part with other people, or only live under that part ourselves, I think we're kind of like Jonah. Yet, forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was so cool. Like, not that he would—the idea that not only would he not just only say that, but that he just like walked in and walked into Nineveh forty days. He just left. Like, maybe right? It's kind of. Only said it once. Whoever heard him? maybe walks up to the king, 40 days and you're going down. It just takes off. Maybe. Uh, We want to say only that part to certain people. We want God's righteousness and his justice to fall on others. That should be the end of this sermon. God's righteousness and justice are revealed in two statements. First, Exodus 23, 7, where God himself says, I will not acquit the wicked. We remember we're wicked, therefore God will not acquit pardon us. That's a problem. There's two statements. The second statement is found in Romans chapter 4 verse 5 where Paul writes of God's inspired word. Romans chapter 4 verse 5 describes God as him who justifies the ungodly. You can find it, look at it yourself if you think I misread that. God is the one who justifies the ungodly. Acquittal and justification, the word justifies, it puts us into a courtroom. All right, hopefully we understand that that's where that term comes from. We're talking about justice again. We're talking about a courtroom. A murderer sits on trial in this courtroom. What is your plea? Guilty. Evidence is presented. Witnesses are called against him. Prosecution rests. Defense. Any defense or excuses? No. The defense rests. Easiest trial ever. A brief recess while the judge reviews the case. He's probably trying to decide whether to send this guy straight to the chair or let him rot in jail for a few years first. The judge finishes his deliberation. The bailiff quiets the courtroom. The judge speaks up. After reviewing the case, I I find the defendant not guilty. And as the gavel pounds, you you could hear a pin drop. I mean, what a despicable miscarriage of justice, right? Like, how could that judge acquit the wicked like that? How could he justify one who is ungodly? Well, listen to Paul in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. This is in the middle of the argument of Romans, but I'm not missing the point. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's a quote from Genesis. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, does not obey, to the one who is not righteous, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, which we could say is righteousness apart from righteousness. This is what David says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds exist, whose lawless deeds, they're there, but they're forgiven whose sins, which are real and heinous, are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The sin is there, but it's forgiven, covered, and not counted against him. And that one description in verse five, him who justifies the ungodly, is as stark and shocking as the courtroom scene I described. If you don't think it is, I would say you don't understand the words. It's that, it's that shocking. But when God justifies the ungodly, it is not a miscarriage of justice. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Yes, always. So how can that be? How how can the, the same Bible say God will not acquit the wicked God's the one who justifies the ungodly. Because you could, you could flip those terms. You could say God will not acquit the wicked. God is the one who acquits the wicked in justification. How is that? Because God, as righteous and just lawgiver and judge, righteously and justly accepts substitute Payment. According to his perfect right nature and character, which then flows out in his judgment and justice of all things, God accepts substitute payment. If you owe $10,000 and it's paid on your account by someone else, how much money do you owe? Try not to make that math hard. Zero dollars. Your debt is... Is wiped out by substitute payment. And I'm telling you that according to God's word, and if it didn't say it there, it would be a horrific lie, a wild idea. But God says he accepts substitute payment. His word is dripping with that reality because it's in his nature of mercy and grace to receive payment on behalf of those who cannot pay it themselves. And that's what he does. He accepts substitute payment. Incarnate is a great word. Incarnate. Sometimes we talk about like a Hitler or Mussolini or somebody else being evil. Incarnate, right? You heard that kind of a phrase? Incarnate. In the flesh. We also use that term theologically, incarnate, incarnation, to talk about Jesus. In Titus 2, Paul says that the grace of God appeared. That's a cool phrase. Grace showed up on the scene. Grace took on a body. He says it in chapter three as well. He says, the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, not just acted, but showed up, made itself visible, took on flesh, incarnate. As Ken has been teaching many of you in training hour, these are attributes of God, grace, goodness, Loving kindness, it's not just saying, oh, Jesus was nice. Jesus was gracious like God is gracious. Jesus was good like God is good. Jesus loved people like God loved people. That's not going far enough. Jesus is God. So these attributes and all of who God is became incarnate In Jesus, the the attributes of God, God himself took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, all of the fullness of God dwelled bodily in Jesus, Paul takes labors to say twice in the book of Colossians. What about God's righteousness? Yes, that too. That God's righteousness walked on this earth and lived in absolute, sinless perfection. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the righteousness of God. Jesus isn't just righteous like God is righteous. Jesus is the righteousness of God. Absolute obedience to the Ten Commandments, absolute obedience to the Two Commandments, loved God completely, loved his neighbor as himself, And whatever way that you want to see that playing out, Jesus kept and fulfilled the law in that way. And on the cross, the judge of all the earth transferred the guilt of wicked, unrighteous, ungodly sinners like us onto his innocent, righteous, godly son. Then the white-hot fury of just wrath poured out on him, crushing him for our iniquity. And through faith, that substitute payment that we did not make can be transferred into my account and clear my debt. In the righteous justice of God, that's allowed. You don't get to decide if that's allowed. You don't get to decide that that's not allowed. God has said it's allowed. So there's good news in the gospel. You don't get to decide if some of your good works can contribute to paying off a little bit of your debt. It doesn't. You're too unrighteous. The best you have to offer is filthy rags, right? Your hands are stained with blood and you're like, "Hey, yeah. Can this take care of my crimes?" Like, of course it can't take care of your crime. 2 Corinthians 5:21, "For our sake God made Christ, he made him God made Christ to be sin" who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I know I've used the example before trying to help make it clear to my kids. I mean me, but my kids. Whiteboard. Peter, one side, Jesus on the other side. How often have I broken the law? Take a red dry erase marker. Girls, Do you remember we did this a while ago? How often has daddy obeyed? There's not enough whiteboard. There's not enough markers where all the uh, with a sky, a whiteboard, and every stalk on earth, a red marker to write the sins. Peter Ambler, not enough. And we write Jesus. Take a green marker. Check marks. Right? The check mark thing in X's is, is important to me because when I was in sixth grade, I had a dear, wonderful teacher, uh, Brian Camion, who did not deserve to have me as a student, but he is a godly man. And... Whatever his rule was of how you, got, you get into a little bit, I'm always, I've always been okay with a little bit of trouble, but not a lot of trouble. And I, I figured that out because mom and dad, I didn't want them to learn about. That's the threshold of like, where did mom and dad find out? And I wanted to stay underneath that. They know this. So if it was, if you get your name and two check marks for talking, and I always talk, now I get paid to talk. If you get your name and two check marks on the board, you go to the principal. Well, you go to the principal, mom and dad find out. So it would say it's a PJ at the time, PJ and one check mark, and then I was silent for the rest of the day. If it was name and one check mark, just my name's on the board. If it was if you get your name on the board, my name wasn't on the board. Made it through an entire year of getting just not that much trouble. So check marks are a sign of guilt to me. That's why this illustration works. So Peter, filled with red X's, Jesus, filled with green check marks. Not only did he not break laws, but he obeyed, honored his father and mother, kept the Sabbath, no other gods, no murder, loving his enemies, not lusting but acting in righteousness. We just go a whole life pleasing God and other people. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says what happens through faith in the gospel is that Peter's name is erased and swapped with Jesus' name. So as God looks at the situation and he looks at unrighteous me, I've got green check marks under my name. I haven't earned a single one of them. And Jesus didn't do a single thing that I did wrong. And he suffered the punishment for that. And not just the things that happened before I trusted him, but every sin I will Ever commit. God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him I could become the righteousness of God. And that's the righteous offer that a judge makes to you. So much more than that. Is that fair? No. (laughs) That is not fair. That is not what I deserve. Is that merciful? Yes. But it's also even more important, I think, than the aspect of that mercy is that it is righteous and just for God to do that. Offering the righteousness of Jesus to unrighteous sinners is righteous of God, it is within the bounds of his perfect, eternal righteousness and justice. There is no miscarriage of justice in God transferring the righteousness of Christ to sinners through faith, and it's his world, so he gets to decide, and that's the good news that's offered in the gospel. Romans three twenty three to 26. Romans three twenty three. right? All of us hopefully have that memorized. Such a popular verse. Really need to keep going. Take some time. Every verse that you only have one verse memorized, look at the whole paragraph because it's really important. This is including that. Romans 3.23 through 26. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's statement one. And this is verse 24. Right? There's a comma there. Why do we only memorize one part of this? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, as a propitiation, a sacrifice, a covering by his blood, his death, to be received by faith, hear this, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins. See, it, it appeared like he had acquitted the wicked and done nothing about their guilt. That's what it looked like, and it looked like that for millennia. It was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is this verse saying? It's like what Jesus did on the cross allowed for God to say in Exodus 23, I will not acquit the guilty, and then for Paul to follow that up in perfect unity and harmony in Romans chapter 4 is saying, I am the one who justifies the ungodly, right? Jesus on the cross is what makes that possible. You know, where was God's justice against Abraham's idolatry? Where was God's justice against Moses murdering an Egyptian and his angry disobedience and striking the rock when God told him to say that and a life of other sinful things? Where's God's justice against that? Where's God's justice against David's adultery and murder? There was no sacrifice that allowed for David to live. Nathan, I mean, there's some pretty awesome prophets, right? Samuel hacks up Agag with a sword. That's pretty crazy for a prophet. Nathan should have walked in and executed David on the spot. Ever thought about that? To defend the righteousness of God and act as a servant of his justice. But he didn't. David got to continue being king. David was blessed by God. Where's justice? How could he acquit the guilty like that? Paul was blasphemous in his opposition to Jesus and his persecution of his followers. God's righteousness and justice did not fully and finally fall on any of those sinners or any other sinner. God's righteousness and justice did not fall fully on Jonah. Chuck him into the sea, he should have gotten chewed up by a shark, not saved by that fish, or drowned in his wickedness. Time after time, (laughs) Jonah deserved suffering and damnation and did not receive it. God, did God acquit the guilty? I thought he said he wouldn't do that. What is it? It's a, Jesus is the missing piece to that. Jesus' death on the cross allows that to happen because God's righteousness and his justice has not fully or finally fallen on any of us either. But at the end of time and the dawn of eternity, the perfect righteousness of God will be vindicated and his perfect justice will be satisfied shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, will be permanently and perfectly answered. Because every sin by every sinner, including yours and mine, will have received, at that point, its just punishment, either in the lake of fire forever or on the cross of Jesus Christ. See, those are your options when it comes to facing the righteousness and the justice of God. Try it on your own, or trust in Jesus. I cannot emphasize enough the utter folly of trying to face that on your own. God is righteous. You are not. I am not. But in the gospel, righteousness is available for unrighteous people. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So, believe in Jesus. Not believe and then live up to the standard and maybe you'll make it. That's not not what the Bible says. Faith without works. And then God changes us, but it's just trust. Trust in Jesus. God, you you are perfectly righteous in a way that should stagger our imaginations if we're paying attention your righteousness guides your rule of your universe you have forbeared you've been patient with us and beyond that you have offered in grace and mercy the righteousness of your son to us open our open our eyes and our hearts to place all of our, our hope and our trust in Christ, whether that's for the first time or whether that's a renewal of, for the thousandth time, to be reminded that we must have Jesus. Be glorified in that. Thank you for not treating us according to our sins. Thank you for taking out your justice on Jesus instead of us. Amen.